Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey, guys, this is The Bitch with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And uh, today our guest is Daniel Akaye, an economist who you will often find uh, commenting on European matters, but also has many insights on the American Central Bank, and I'm sure you'll notice he's got columns on Mises.org uh, at least twice a month, generally. Um, and you'll also see him on, uh, he's done plenty of video work, uh, and coming out of both Madrid and London, you can see a lot of his commentary uh, on his own site, uh, and we'll link to that in the uh, description of this podcast. And uh, if you want to go see there and see, see some of the video content, and you can also, of course, read his columns on Mises.org. And uh, so I, part of the reason I wanted to have you on, Daniel, is you make lots of comments that I think are the sorts of things that need to be returned to and explained in a little bit more uh, expansive fashion than what we get even from your columns. Cause there's a lot of good little phrases in here that explain things and which I just want to expand upon more. Uh, and we'll, I'll just, add, I'll, let's just get right into it. Um, and you can see, I think the seed of all of these discussions in the columns, but let's, I'm just going to ask you to explain some of these concepts in more detail. So let's look at the issue of, for example, one thing that I think our readers are going to see a lot of the time is they're looking around and they're seeing that uh, interest rates are rising. They're seeing that if they're reading Mises.org, they're seeing that the money supply is falling. 
And they, if they know anything about Austrian business cycle theory, they know that as the money supply falls, that tends to be followed by a bust in the bubble, that uh, we've been living in a bubble economy now for years. Uh, we could debate how many years exactly, but <laughs> certainly we could all agree, at least since 2009. Um, and so now that the Fed has started to let rates rise and the money supply is falling, why why aren't why haven't we seen a bust yet? Why aren't why isn't the job situation considerably more worse than it is? And we'll get a little bit more into um, the the concept of the soft landing. Uh, but why not just start with the job situation? Why why are jobs still so elevated? Why haven't we seen really the effects of falling money supply yet? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to start with. It's a, it's a great pleasure and always good to read you as well at uh, Mises.org. Never miss your articles. Um, <clears throat> the reason why we have not seen a bust in the way that people would have expected it to is because two things are very different from what we have seen in previous uh, rate hike cycles. The first one is that fiscal policy is moving in the opposite direction of monetary policy. So although there are rate hikes and some monetary contraction, uh, the government continues to deficit spend as if nothing was happening. And, and in fact, it is not just uh, in the opposite direction, but, but with steroids, no, on steroids, in fact, the, the, the level of deficit spending is huge. So that is one one of the aspects because obviously government spending when the, when when government weighs about 38 to 56 percent in developed economies of GDP, obviously if the government is spending way lot more and deficit spending is rising, the impact on GDP is is of the of a monetary contraction is much more limited than one would imagine. But there's another important element is that we focus a lot on rates. And we focus a lot on M2, among uh, the monetary base, but we don't look enough at net liquidity, which I think is critical. And net liquidity, if you look at it, shows that policy from central banks has been actually incredibly accommodative. And if you look at net liquidity, has actually it made sort of a U-turn in the second half of the year and has risen back to pre rate hike uh, moment uh, in in October, November, and December. So net liquidity means what probably everyone that is listening to us right now has witnessed is that I don't know any of our listeners, but I'm almost certain that they have received at some point in the last six months an email from their financial services provider from their bank offering a loan, a pre a uh, conceded loan. That in itself shows the level of liquidity that exists in the economy. So we're basically living actually on borrowed time from the massive burst in money supply that uh, uh, that happened between 2020 and 2021. And therefore, the lag effect of monetary contraction that tends to reflect a recession is happening gradually and is falling entirely on the shoulders of the private sector. The rate hike process is not affecting deficit spending. Governments do not even care if the bond yield is at 5% or at 4% or at 6 
they continue to spend. But the impact of rate hikes is certainly very evident on families and on businesses. Real consumption uh, is actually not rising. It's actually almost flat. And if you look at real consumption adjusted for the increase in debt, that is even more concerning. But if you look at the private sector in the last uh, figures of GDP, etc., investment, uh, all of the elements that dictate what is a solid, robust growth, all of those are in decline. So that's why I mention always the concept of the private sector recession, because as as the government weight in the economy rises so much, it becomes ridiculous in some uh, in some economies to even look at GDP uh, as a factor. And one of the things that is incredibly concerning to me in the United States in particular is how the trend of GDP versus GDI, gross domestic income, and gross domestic output. So gross domestic income and gross domestic output are actually in recession, yet gross domestic product mm, is in expansion. That divergence did not happen in 2011, in 2009. It's been in the moment in which the monetary policy and fiscal policy have moved in complete opposite uh, ways. So will we see a recession? Very likely we will see a recession, but <clears throat> the job creation that we are looking at gives a very false impression of strength. The first one in the United States, the, the great thing about the United States is the quality and the abundance of data, not as much in the Euro area and in Japan. But if you look at the United States and if you look at the labor participation rate, it's still below the level of 2019, the pre-COVID level. If you look at employment to population ratio, it is also below the level of 2019. And you have also written extensively about how we are in a real wage decline, negative real wage growth. Mm -hmm. So when you have real wage growth in negative terms and those, let's say, more, more uh, informative ratios of what employment is are showing us that the quality of the employment is not as good, mm -hmm, then Obviously, we're not seeing a decline in uh, in the in the in the jobs figures the way that we would have expected, because in reality, the the jobs data is very poor, regardless of an allegedly strong economy. I think that those is is that we is I think it's the time we mentioned before we started recording. I think it's the time of economists. We need to go and strip some of these extremely aggregated pieces of data and tell people what actually resonates very quickly with them. They say, yeah, that is exactly what I'm feeling. I'm not seeing my, my wages in real terms improving. I am not seeing the, bo the, the boom of the employment um, that people are talking about and certainly not seeing this high growth economy. Well, I know that among many of our readers, and of course our writers also, Robert Higgs, uh, one of our great uh, fellows on this topic, has written on the how government spending affects GDP and the numbers. Mm. And <clears throat> so based on what you're mentioning here, that seems to be an issue here now. 
yes, is that uh, government spending is just so off the charts that that is one way to help push up GDP. Also, the issue that French, Frank Shostak likes to raise is that, well, if you increase the money supply since GDP is measured in dollars, that would increase GDP also in a way. So, so, so are these important issues? There's an important issue. What Frank mentions a lot of times is that real GDP, as the, the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics measures it, is using a, G, uh, a GDP deflector, deflator, sorry, uh, uh, that, that is significantly different than CPI, Consumer Price Index, and it's certainly, and we all know that Consumer Price Index is uh, always massaging real inflation, no? But from real inflation to the, C to the GDP deflator, there is a huge level of difference. Therefore, GDP in itself, even though it is mm, published as being uh, GDP in real terms is actually in numerous cases generating a false view of growth because it's actually a lot more nominal if, this, if that helps than the, what people would, would perceive. And obviously huge government spending, mm -hmm, it not only detracts from productive growth, that's why we see very low productivity growth and we see all of those ratios that I mentioned that remain uh, quite weak, but also GDP, uh, GDP is not only affected in the uh, government consumption and the public consumption side by government spending, it is also affected in private consumption when there's a lot of job creation coming from the public sector and is also uh, shown, for example, in a better figure of exports than probably you would get in the in the in the external sector contribution to GDP. So uh, this gradual nationalization of the economy it creates a false impression of strength in the GDP figure. By the way, gross domestic product itself was always a very good measure to hide imbalances in the private sector uh, side of the economy. It's always been a great way for governments to sort of uh, man massage the, the, the economic figures. So what it's, but what it's basically showing us is that small businesses, families, and what generates productivity growth, what generates innovation, what generates improvement and long-term improvements in the economy uh, are actually lagging quite significantly, and that the overall GDP figure is bloated by debt and government spending. Well, so maybe you can jog my memory. It was just recently that one of our writers um, looked at the topic of government jobs as a percentage of all new jobs created and that okay. we're currently one of the highest percentages that that we've seen and that generally the the percentage of government jobs to all jobs created tends to to to, to peak or spike right before recessions occur also so this okay. is certainly a current trend that we're in right now is that yeah all that government spending there's a whole lot of government job creation going on right now but not nearly as much private sector I believe it was as high as 30% of some of the new jobs reports that coming from that were, were those government jobs. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that right there kind of shows the problem.
That shows that shows a very important problem because also um, uh, if I may bring this back to where uh, the, the the very challenging situation of the euro area, people accept these figures and say, hey, you know, if, if things are going well, then the government must be doing something right. But then what you start to see is the crowding out effect. What you start to see is that government jobs are better paid than private sector jobs because the entire burden of taxation, obviously, and of the monetary contraction falls on the private sector. So there is a crowding out in which people prefer to have a government job than to have a private sector job in many cases, even if it's better paid. And this is a very, very dangerous situation that's very evident in Spain, Italy, Portugal, and other countries. And on the other hand, what you see is that the 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 perception of impoverishment of the middle class accelerates. So people do perceive and do see that they're worse off, but they don't understand why, because they read that there's a record level of jobs, that it's a blowout job number. No, you know, I'm a contributor to some of the US media outlets and this blowout jobs number. Well, I don't see the blowout anywhere, to be fairly honest. I see, I see that an economy like the United States with a level of recovery like the one that it's having compared to uh, where it was uh, previous to the COVID-19 period, should be right now generating between 250 to 300,000 jobs, of which between 70 to 90% should be private sector jobs, not as though though was mentioning right now, 30%, even 35% at some point, depending on the the jobs uh, report. We have grown accustomed to that idea. It's super dangerous. It is really, really dangerous because it creates uh, a new subclass. There is a there is a new aristocracy, which is uh, those people that work uh, for government or government agencies and collect uh, from other people's taxes. Uh, and that that as they become a larger proportion, they also are creating the imbalances that drive economies to be in almost permanent stagnation. And the example is the euro area, no? Well, and I think an important issue is just to really drive home the fact that they, if there's anything that doesn't describe our current economy, it's austerity. Uh, I mean, you'll, 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 right, you'll hear from the left that, oh, man, I mean, spending isn't where it should be. And uh, boy, we really need to, uh, to up our attention, the, the attention government gives to this and that. And there's already so much more money flowing that it's unbelievable. And I will just return to an issue you had touched on a few minutes ago, which is the issue of how there's more liquidity out there than is admitted. Uh, and we read an article yesterday by Doug French talking about how all of these these little pieces that the Fed has going in terms of making sure that the banks still have plenty of liquidity. Um, they've got tons of, of assets that are underwater and they, they, <laughs> they're, they're not in a great shape in terms of their balance sheet. Let's make sure these people have no shortage of liquidity so that no disaster could possibly occur. And so what are some of the sources that, and both in Europe and in the United States, what are some of the sources? Because normally we talk about liquidity in terms of, oh, hey, look, they're buying up a bunch of mortgage-backed security debt. They're buying up government bonds in order to keep liquidity flowing that way. But there's many other smaller ways they could do it as well. There's this sort of shadow liquidity out there um, that happens behind the scenes between the banks and the Fed. 
And so what are some of these these ways that the central banks are making sure there's still plenty of liquidity, even though, yes, we are admittedly starting to see, at least with the Fed, uh, the amount of their portfolio is in terms of the big numbers getting smaller. Fine. But there apparently is still these these pieces of liquidity out there that nobody's talking about. Absolutely. If you look at the latest figures from the from the United States, the Federal Reserve website, you see that M1 and M2, the narrow and broader element of, of money supply that the Federal Reserve publishes, have declined. And they have declined, as we have mentioned in numerous times, in a significant way. However, if you continue and you see the level of borrowings in the Mem in what they called memorandum reserves, which is basically the window of liquidity that uh, banks tap into when they have a problem and they basically exchange, which is amazing, it's completely against any market view, which they exchange long-term dated bonds for cash at par despite maybe suffering a, uh, a loss in, in, the, in the portfolio or at least a, 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 or at least a, a, a non-realized loss. No? And that has blown out, has blown out massively. And it's currently at uh, almost 150 billion uh, for November. No? So what it's showing you basically is that what the Fed is doing is, is centering the attention of markets and economists on rates mm, and on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. And people say, hey, this is the largest monetary contraction in history. You've had a massive increase in, in rates and the, the balance of the Fed to GDP has fallen from 35 to 28%. Huge. No? Well, no. Because this amount of liquidity that that moves very, very quickly and doesn't appear in the balance sheet unless it stays for a very prolonged period of time is generating uh, a movement in money supply that uh, is staying within the banking system. So it's basically a hidden bailout of the banking system in order to avoid that smaller banks go through a situation similar to uh, First Republic or, uh, the, of, or Silicon Valley Bank. No? And that is at the highest level since the banking crisis. It's not like it was, a, remember that it, as all government plans, yeah, every, uh, Friedman used to say, no, that every temporary uh, government plan is permanent. <laughs> no, but this is, this is proven to be permanent because as you say, as you have seen, the, the massive liquidity injections implemented for, uh, to avoid the contagion effect, not the contagion effect, to avoid the realization of the profound uh, losses uh, incurred by the by the government bond portfolios in banks uh, would would come up to the fore no so that continues and it's at the highest level so yes on the one hand m2 m1 decline while this enormous uh, amount of borrowing in the in the window of liquidity of the federal reserve goes to new highs and that therefore keeps the credit machine flowing because what I find interesting then is that if you look at the contraction in money supply M1 and M2 
And you look at what it would have generated in a normal environment in terms of reduction of access to credit and in terms of reduction in job creation. Those two elements have been disguised by the fact that banks are being sort of bailed out uh, in a hidden way through these windows. In the case of the European Central Bank, it's pretty evident. They have this insane thing called the anti-fragmentation measure by which, think about this, the countries that are uh, repaying their debt and uh, basically leaving their bonds out of the balance sheet. So with that money, what the, what the European Central Bank is doing is purchasing bonds of the countries that are not doing their homework and they're not. So it's basically an incentive to be reckless on financial terms. So what we are basically seeing is, is, is the fallacy of a monetary contraction that is not in reality, a monetary contraction is a targeted monetary contraction, is that monetary contraction is going directly and only to small, small, small businesses and families, and government banks and large corporations have all of the access to liquidity and more that they would have, that they would have desired. There's this interesting dynamic where on one side, the Fed is kind of raising the, the mission accomplished uh, banner. Everyone's talking about how great the economy is going. And yet, you know, you, you do have um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Silicon Valley support system that was created after that. Um, and this is the point that Doug French was, was talking about. You know, it, it should, in theory, expire in March. I don't think anyone expects it to happen. And so, yeah, all these training wheels that they've created on, on the U.S. Uh, more from the U.S. side, they, you know, there, there's no indication <laughs> that the economy is doing so great that any of this stuff has to go away. Um, and of course, uh, 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 Daniel, you've uh, any reader of yours for for several years now would be very familiar with the extent of which. You know, the the financial or the monetary intervention that the central banks have had, you know, the, the damage that was doing the quality of bank balance sheets um, for for a very long time now, um, mm. and so you know, this 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 problem that has been uh, uh, so long in the making, uh, so it seems like some of those uh, uh, chickens are really coming home to roost. Yeah, absolutely. Think about this for a second, and think of what it means for the concept of uh, being imprudent and fiscally irresponsible. What the Federal Reserve has told banks is that if they enter into a situation in which they are negatively impacted because they own way too many government bonds that are loss-making in their books, that will be a circumstance that will lead to a support. However, what the government is telling banks, on the other hand, is that if they could generate substantial profits, they're doing well, they're generating positive margins and have a prudent balance sheet, they're going to tax them like there's no tomorrow. So if you're a bank, yeah, even if that's not the way that you're thinking, indirectly, what you're thinking is, okay, there is absolutely no benefit in being prudent, having a, 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 a stable balance sheet with, with, with good liquidity and uh, solvency ratios, because I'm going to get taxed out of my brains. And at the same time, if I do things in, propri- in, a, in an improper way, I will certainly receive a very significant bailout. So, it's, you know, we've discussed also. 
a number of times in, in, in my column, the concept of zombification of the economy. This is the zombification of the economy. By the way, when the Federal Reserve mentions soft landing, it is literally thinking about the zombification of the economy. It is literally thinking that the economy is going to continue to so, sort of survive, do relatively well, but without any drastic uh, scare-creating events in large corporations, large banks. So it's, it's again, it's a, it's a constant bailout of the inefficient. Well, let's look forward now to 2024. Uh, the, <laughs> if you uh, take a finance class, you'll be surprised to learn that they still talk about fundamentals. Let's look at the fundamentals of this firm before we invest in it. Well, I, why do we even bother anymore? There's no fundamentals anymore. <laughs> All we're talking about is will the Fed rate, will the Fed hike rates, or will it lower rates? That seems to be the only fundamentals we care about, and uh, that's what we're talking about now in 2024 is, okay, well, when does the Fed start start lowering rates? Because now uh, inflation is solved. That's a whole topic in itself. Uh, <laughs> you note that since 2018, of course, uh, cumulative inflation has been 22%. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that's solved. Um, but every, uh, there's a perception among many policymakers, at least, that, okay, we can start to lower rates now because inflation is not a big deal. Um, but the the idea behind that is that okay everything all our problems will be solved once the central banks go back to lowering rates aggressively and then we'll get a new flowering of the economy now you note in one of your reason columns you say central banks may cut rates with no real effect on the productive economy and solve nothing um so how does that play out then so we go back to a situation where all right the fed says we fixed everything everything's great Let's let's get the the motor going again. Let's lower rates, and yet somehow things go off the rails anyway. So how how does that work? Well, let's let's start by when and how would the Federal Reserve decide to cut rates? We read yesterday in the FOMC minutes that obviously they're not in any shape or form thinking about the rate cuts that the market is predicting and anticipating, way too optimistic. But what we know is that the Fed never acts preemptively, neither the Fed nor the ECB or the Bank of Japan. So the only reason why they would start to cut rates is if they actually saw a significant decrease in aggregate demand coming from the contraction of money supply that you and I have talked about, that we have talked about prior. Uh, so what, how do you achieve a significant reduction in aggregate demand when deficit spending from the government, which is around 38% of GDP, is continuing to rise? So government consumption of monetary units is not falling, is, it, is rising. No? So the only way in which aggregate demand falls with rising public sector demand is if the level of private sector demand slumps significantly, by the way, because it has to offset the increase in money uh, uh, consumption from the, uh, from the public sector. Okay, so let's think what that means for the economy. That means a very significant recession in terms of earnings, in terms of uh, consumption, etc. 
if the Federal Reserve then decides to cut rates, think about, imagine that you're a small business, you're a, you're a family, you're a large business, it doesn't even matter. What is going to change in your perception about investment, uh, indebtedness opportunities or growth opportunities for a 25 or 50 basis points change in borrowing rates? Because borrowing rates are an important factor mm -hmm. when those borrowing rates are significantly higher than the perception of long-term inflation but if the perception of long-term inflation is creeping up and it's about three percent now people are talking about now people the new normal is three percent yeah? there you go they just added uh, another another third to your to your loss of purchasing power of the of the currency but the point is people are not going to borrow more or take more investment decisions or make more uh, purchases of goods and services because of a cut of 25 50 basis points even 100 basis points mm -hmm. so the element to, to watch in 2024 is not that. The element to watch in 2024 is whether the $7 trillion or so that the government has to refinance, which will be refinanced, is going to withdraw way too much liquidity out of the economy that it creates a credit crunch in the private sector economy, i.e. that what, what we have seen in 2023 is the initial impact of rate hikes, but we have not yet seen the impact of rate hikes plus the reduction in access to credit. Remember what I said before, I know that the people that are watching, uh, listening to us today, have received in the past six months at least an email from their bank with a pre-conceded uh, uh, loan. Okay, when that leaves, so basically how much of the wall of maturities is going to um, create a very significant crunch in, uh, in, in, in demand for and, and availability of credit? And that is, and that is the debate. Mm, that is a debate. It's not an easy one because it depends also in what is the Federal Reserve going to do with this uh, fourth column of uh, memorandum reserves. No, uh, but I think it's going to be a very, very significant and and uh, and the lag effect that we mentioned before doesn't happen slowly and at the same time. It happens abruptly in. Uh, a period of maybe one or two months after uh, 12 to 15 months after the last great hike. Which was I in the United States, I believe, was in August of mm -hmm. last year. And I'm not sure uh, when it was in Europe that, I mean, there was a small series of rate yeah, hikes probably. there, right? In September, in September, okay. but it's exact. So, so to 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 be as bold in December of 2023, January 2024, to say as I have read from some of the Keynesian economists, ah, we have achieved 
the disinflation effect that we wanted with no discernible impact on the economy. What are you talking about? I mean, we have not even still seen the beginning of the impact of the, uh, of the rate hikes, and we have seen zero of the impact of the liquidity contraction. That's what we need to monitor. But what we certainly cannot say either, as you have written extensively as well, is that we have won the battle against inflation when 85% of the reduction of inflation comes from the base effect. And when you have prices rising, you know, 78% of prices in the last uh, in the last piece of data continue to rise. They're not falling, you know, with 22% inflation accumulated in, in, in the past years. And the expectation is that the Fed starts to rate to cut rates with an estimate of two and a half, three percent inflation on top of that. It's it's pretty insane. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, Daniel. Uh, we should really check back with you uh, later this year and see how things are going as we get closer to that 12 to 14 month lag, too. <laughs> Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that plays out, uh, if that lag, of, if uh, that particular average lag time is still in effect. Uh, there's still so many questions for this year. But yes, I don't think people should get their hopes up too much that, uh, yeah, let's cut uh, the target rate by 50 basis points and everything will be fine. Uh, that I just yeah. don't think that's that's a reasonable hope for 2024. What I say to people is don't bet on one thing and the opposite at the same time. If you really believe that there's going to be five rate cuts, please, you need to understand that you're betting on a massive recession, not on a slow, uh, on, a, on, a, on a slow land, on a soft landing. Okay. If you believe that there's going to be a soft landing, don't bet on five rate cuts. That's easy. It's, it's as easy and as complicated as that. But you don't bet on both things, which is what the market is doing right now, and probably wrongly so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, for coming on. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you, though. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. So we'll see you next time.